What the heck is the deal with the beef shortage? I've been asked that question a bunch of times by a lot of folks on social media, and I decided that it would probably be best to try to address that with my buddy Javier Goya. He's been a commodities trader for about 25 years and really knows his stuff. So we're going to get down and cover all of that, plus what's going on with some of these other commodities. And I've got to apologize to y'all. I got a, I don't know if it's allergies or a cold or something. It's not the Rona, <laughs> but I got something going on with my voice. So <clears throat> bear with us on this one. Before we get started, I want to tell y'all thanks again for all the reviews you leave me. And if you want a copy of the book, remember that we're doing a pre-order right now on BraxMcCoy.com slash The Glass Factory. You can go snatch that thing up for 25% off and free shipping. Go grab it. Thank y'all. I'm Brax McCoy, and I'm here with my buddy Javier. He's like uh, commodities extraordinaire. Do you want to actually? You know what? Can you just can you just tell us who you are, so I don't have to play around? Sure. Hey, thanks, Braxton. Um, so I am Javier Goya. Um, as those of you who are familiar with the bird app might know me, you might not. Um, I am uh, on my 25th year in the commercial commodity space as a broker. Um, I have a limited uh, expertise in lots of different commodities. I'd say electricity, um, heavy oils, light ends, anything with an ain on it, and um, agriculture from ethanol to corn, beans, wheat. Um, you know, Braxton mentioned alfalfa on the bird app the other day. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a PhD. I'm not a, um, I'm not a academic by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I'm a college dropout from Wyoming uh, who happened to be in a bar one night and uh, 25 years ago and met some guys and, and ended up uh, working in the commodity space and uh, I've uh, been very fortunate and very blessed to have a pretty interesting life in that space um, that's led me here to uh, yesterday and uh, Braxton and um, a tweet that he put out yesterday which is kind of why why we're talking yeah you know it's funny that's uh that might be the first success story I've ever heard that started on a bar stool <laughs> well <laughs> you know <laughs> irony is this a year after that uh meeting in the bar um i was in that same bar and a friend of mine introduced me to my wife no kidding we weren't i promise you mrs goy and i were married a year later and so that same bar uh, got me my job and a career and it also uh, found me my wife very cool that's very yep. cool but um before we go any further can you define commodity for people Sure. So um, most people have a general idea of what a commodity is, but it is basically a good um, in any way, shape or form. You can imagine a good that can be bought and sold um, either today or tomorrow. Um, and there's a general definition under which uh, is under argument today as to whether or not it can or cannot be stored. Uh, for years, electricity was not treated as a commodity because its lifespan from generation to use was about 10 minutes, uh, whether it was a coal plant, nuclear nuclear power plant, whatever it cost to run the lines. Um, it was stored for about 10 minutes, but obviously with the advent of batteries, um, it's becoming more commoditized. Um, but that is the general definition. So you either have to burn it, 
eat it, um, add it into something else, mold it, but that is what a commodity is. Generally, it's everything that we use at some point in time during our day. Perfect. Yeah. So uh, raw wheat is a commodity and bread is a good, right? Correct. Yep. Perfect. So that's for the other idiots out there. Like I'm, I'm kind of king idiot. So I to kind of boil it down like that. Now um, on that tweet, I, I, we were talking a little bit before, but I think I know which one you're talking about. And I'm, I'm actually interested why that, that one peaked your, uh, you know, got you peaked. Well, you know, for those of you who may be listening that don't watch the bird app, you can go to Braxton's feed and go back to April 27th of 2020. So this is about what, 13 months ago. Um, and he types out beef shortages are coming. We can just about guarantee that the problem is we won't really see the impact for 18 months. The question is, how do we make a culture hooked on instant gratification care about a situation that won't manifest itself for over a year? Question mark. The funny thing is, Braxton, you retweeted yourself yesterday and pointed out that no one interacted with it, but that it was accurate. And that's mm -hmm. uncommon, which it started this whole conversation of which I was a part of. It's several other people we know are a part of. And it morphs into, you know, what many of your tweets are, which is fascinating conversation. Mm -hmm. My question to you, and one of the reasons I think why we're talking today is, is how did you know? Um, okay. I was, I was scheduled to go speak in, at a conference in Las Vegas. The company that hired me was from San Francisco and I was supposed to leave Saturday morning. And I was actually just going to drive down instead of fly because my family, my wife wanted to visit her family in Utah. So I got a call from the company that had hired me um, Friday night after hours. And they said, hey, we're canceling the speech. Um, it sounds like the whole conference is going to get canceled because of this COVID stuff. And I had been listening to Tim Poole a little bit here and there. And he'd been on the coronavirus stuff for, gosh, since like December, uh, you know, of the year before. And all of the shutdowns were starting and they were closing schools. And I was talking to a certain congressman um, that I, I, I wouldn't say no, but that I communi communicate with sometimes via DM. And this guy works in the ag space or used to work in the ag space before he became a congressman. And, I, and he does still have cattle. And we were just going back and forth on this. And I was saying, well, you close schools. Yeah, that's not going to have an immediate impact on beef because they really don't serve a lot of beef at schools. But what they do serve is a whole bunch of dairy, a ton of dairy. So you close all those schools and then you have all these uh, most dairies are contracted, but some aren't. And you have all of these guys who now have milk that they can't get rid of. And what happens to somebody who uh, is in that, and this is, this is just what I was thinking is someone, if I was trying to run that business and I had just lost, like, let's say 20% of my annual revenue um, and I could see it was going to stay that way for the foreseeable future, then what I would try to do is cull some cows and fatten them up and stick them in the beef market and just get what I could out of them. Obviously they're going to get labeled as exotics um, and I'm not going to get, you know, a premium on them, but I'm going to dump to try to get myself through. So that was the first thing I saw. And then you think about it and some of that happened. It didn't happen as much as I thought because we kind of uh, PPP and sort of kept ourselves afloat that way or kept that industry floating. And then all of the restaurant closures, 
were going on. And then you started to see uh, people buying lots of freezers. And when, when people are buying freezers that have never owned a deep freeze before, you know what they're doing. They're trying to store meat. Well, you have all these packers, you know, the, the, in the ag industry, as you know, but other people don't, um, beef, pork, chicken, they're all, they go through this bottleneck of the packers. And on the beef side, I believe there's four packers. And I think only two of them are even owned by uh, American companies now. Um, one's Brazil. And then I think the other one's China's. I don't know. China owns the pork. But anyway, so all of the meat goes through this funnel, you know, it, it, bottlenecks. And if, if they're putting these restrictions in where they're limiting capacity, well, I mean, it, it was to me, it wasn't that hard to see, you know, put two and two together. And then the other problem that you're going to have is uh, fuel was really cheap but we're in a drought out West. So hay prices are still high, even with cheap fuel. And I was just in my brain, I was thinking there's no way that fuel can stay. Cause I think I paid a dollar 16 for farm fuel last year. And I was thinking there's just no way red diesel can stay at a dollar 16. So that's going to go up and fuel price or excuse me, hay prices are already high. So small ranchers are going to start dumping cattle. I mean, and then there's, you know, obviously that's going to have a, a minimal impact on the market, but it was just seeing the way all of these things, at least in my mind, the way all of these things were going to work together, it was going to make it so, you know, spring, like next time auctions come around, it's going to be a nightmare. And we had another thing, I'm sorry. Um, they canceled all the horse uh, auctions out here in the spring. And that's going to, I mean, I know it doesn't sound like it would impact beef, but it would because the, um, the bigger, the, the guys like me who train horses, we make most of our money at sales. Well, if you cancel those sales, then those horses are going to get dumped on, uh, like Craigslist and this kind of stuff, because you can't just feed a horse for another year, hoping that sales come back one day. So when you, you, you kind of add all of this, oh, excuse me, the way that ties to beef is it makes, it drives, uh, it makes it so, um, more people are buying horses, which is going to drive hay or make it harder to get hay and drive uh, hay prices up. So it's just all of these little things tied together. We're looking to me like this is going to be a problem and it's not going to manifest until next spring because the problem happens now, you know, like, let's say the problem happened today. Well, in the ag space, like you're feeling it, like you, you might be dealing with all of those issues now, but you only get paid twice a year anyway. So you're not going to uh, like it's not going to, it just won't manifest until the next year, you know? Um, anyway, so that's what, that's what made me think of it. Um, well, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, uh, for somebody who's done this for, you know, almost a full 25 years, you know, that's, that's what I spend my life doing. And on, on that day in particular, and I want to go back with you on that day. And I, I almost feel like I'm interviewing you, but I'm not, <laughs> um, because I want to lead, I want to figure out, uh, you know, how a guy, you know, punching cows and, and busting colts um, is sitting here reviewing the world around him in in such a micro versus a macro because you're viewing your personal situation into a sense where you you're calling a national sort of reaction to a personal experience you're having, which most people cannot do. Um, most people in our space in the in the in the commodity space do not do this accurately. So. Um, on the day that you did it, you sent that out on April 27th of last year on, and, and, you know, for me, what I was doing on that day is I was working almost 24 hours around the clock and, and what you describe, what we call demand destruction, right? So mm -hmm. you have, 
relatively known demand across every commodity, whether you're doing food input um, in the ag space for like sugar and grains, um, wheat, corn, um, versus driving demand or airline demand or industrial demand for uh, polymers and anything with the AIN on the end or an AIN, anything that makes plastic, right? So mm. we have data that basically tells us almost every day of the, of the, of the week mm. out for several years, what the demand for commodities looks like. And when you have an event like that took place, you know, it, it was, you know, I was sleeping about four hours a night. I was on the phone with uh, Europe at six o'clock in the morning and I was on the phone with Singapore at, um, you know, from, from about 10 o'clock at night, my time until about two o'clock in the morning. And I would sleep for two hours here and there. And we were trying to divide, decide, you know, how is this going to work today? Um, so a couple notes for you on April 20th, so seven days, a week before you sent that out, that was the day that the crude oil market crashed and futures traded um, $37 under, um, under zero, so negative. So people right. were paying to give crude away um, at some of the you know Midwest terminals. Um, that physical crude was also being paid to be taken away that day in the cash market. So people were buying it, You know, people were getting paid to show up with a truck or a rail car. Um, or a barge to take products and crude. And, and that was remarkable. That was a big uh, eye-opening event for a lot of people. We didn't think the futures market could trade negative. Um, in theory, it should. Um, so seven days later, after that day, and you get your trip canceled um, on the 27th. So crude oil that, that day was trading 12 bucks a barrel. Um, mm. Corn was trading $3. It closed at 305. And soybeans were trading $8.30 a bushel. Lumber was 315. Um, wheat was trading $5.21 a bushel. And there's a slew of other things we could talk about, but these sort of um, these sort of fold into where you went with this, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and, and I want to refer back to another podcast you did with a really smart guy, Joe Clements. Um, he made a point that I wanted to make, which is in the ranch um, farm uh, space, the biggest input is, is energy, right? Mm -hmm. So, you're mm -hmm. sitting here looking at, and even if it's fertilizer, which is an energy byproduct, mm -hmm. um, you're looking at it, relatively speaking, the margins for corn and beans were pretty good. Um, if when you're looking at your energy inputs, um, the margins for cattle were pretty good. You were able to see, you know, there was a margin in the ag market at that day, but that margin very quickly vanished. Yeah. Um, the bottleneck you talked about in sort of the packing market, it was almost immediate. You ended up with the JBS of JBSs of the world started reporting COVID and shutting down. You know, they immediately started mm -hmm. shutting down shifts. Uh, the big plant in um, in Colorado, right on the Colorado um, uh, New Mexico, somewhere down around Colorado New Mexico border, that plant was shut down for weeks. Um, that just doesn't happen in that space. And so you see these little trickle down things that happen. And you think to yourself, okay, well, how in the world are we going to have a beef shortage day? You got to it. Yeah. The majority of people don't. And, and there's a reason we believe in the commodity space for that. And that is, um, that is the average person. And, and, I'll, and I'm going to give you a, a brief story as to sort of how sort of commodity supply chain and sort of these bottlenecks and, and how my fear for, for the point you made is actually going to exasperate itself over the next, I think, five years. Um, the average human thinks about their life in a day, a minute, a week, 
And then they might sometimes think about it over the next year, and they very seldom think about it over the next five years. Um, we, you know, we sort of, as we train people in commodities to sort of look at how we do forward hedging, um, the average person, I think, uh, very much um, overestimates what they can do in a year. They get excited and they think, oh, I can do this, or I can make a move, or I could learn a new subject or learn to cook or pick any type of a thing a human wants to do. And they kind of, they, they tend to overestimate, but on a three, four and five year scale, they very much underestimate because they can't get their head wrapped around the nuances mm. of how much they can do. Right. So there's this mm -hmm. big gap in people's thinking, um, you know, these supply chain issues that we went through and we're starting to really feel them today. Um, we went over the prices on April 27th, um, uh, in 2020 last year. And I'll just give you the quick rundown of, of what we can't imagine a year later. So it's been a year. Mm -hmm. um, crude oil, um, $12.90 last year. It closed at $65 today <laughs> a barrel. Corn closed at $305 a year ago. It closed at $644 today. And I'm going to give you a caveat. Um, corn was a dollar a bushel higher last week. Um, a lot of the um, a lot of the sell-off on that had to do with the bridge over the Mississippi that just opened up this morning a few hours ago with a thousand barges on it backlogged. Um, same with beans. Uh, beans last year, eight twenty-nine. They closed at fifteen ninety-one. Um, lumber, which has been the big story that everyone wants to talk about, closed at three fifteen last year. It is now five times higher at fifteen sixty-six. Jeez. So. That's a big one. Uh, wheat, not so much. Five twenty-one up to seven twenty-seven, um, and there's and those and we can pick those commodities out all all over the place. And you know, if you to talk about supply chain, right? And 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 you know, a lot of the people that we interacted with on this, they brought up different things. We talked about wire mm -hmm. um, yesterday. We talked about uh, plastics. Um, people are talking, you know, and obviously the, a big one that a lot of people that we communicate with is is ammo, right? And you get these demand-driven things. Yeah that that pushes in many different directions and the one that everyone wants to always talk about is when they get too expensive um and and it's a lot of it has to do with how you control the supply chain and you know in the meat business you have four packers two of which are american the other two are foreign right in my opinion it should not it should be more and you know when we talk about supply chain braxton 30 years ago your supply chain was Arguably, for everything you used in your daily life, your supply chain could have been found within 1,500 to, down to 500 miles at max for assembly, production, um, marketing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you did not, we had not outsourced our supply chain yet. So, in theory, these problems that we're dealing with are a bit of our own making. I think when uh, you start talking about the semiconductor squeeze right now, here's an interesting one for you. And I'm sorry to, no, to no, go on I'm tangent here. I saw photos last week um, in two places. One, they got sent to me um, internally within my firm um, just because we were having a discussion about semiconductors. Um, and then I saw it on Zero Hedge. On I-71 uh, between Louisville, Kentucky and Cincinnati, there's a little town called Sparta. And the Super Duty truck factory for Ford is in Louisville, Kentucky. They apparently um, have leased out this giant, these lots along I-71. They have 25,000 um, 250s and 350s sitting there waiting for chips. Completely no finished. Yes, they do. Oh, my gosh. So that's why people can't get trucks right now is because they're waiting that's on correct. a computer chip. Holy cow. That's correct. So 
you're tweeting about beef, right? And and you're tweeting about you know, and you're and you're you're seeing this happening. Well, my job, um, and what and what we do is is yes, that, but we look more to sort of the macro, and it's like you know, you know, what is it going to look like to the individual when he's going to go try to order. Uh, what do they call it? Uber Eats, right? So hmm. Uber Eats is right in front of your face. So if your Uber Eats bill goes from 25 for two people to eat to $40, you kind of don't notice it. Mm-hmm. But if you can't buy a car or if your house cost is you know, up $200,000 over year to year, now all of a sudden people are going, wait a minute, what does inflation really look like? What is right. inflation? How do you measure it? Who cares? Nobody cares about inflation until it affects them personally. You're right. Yeah, you're right. You see. Yeah. And that's an interesting, I was actually just talking uh, to my buddy that's here uh, about that when we were in my garage and I was saying, you know, um, they just, I think the, I think fed just said inflation's at about 3% for this year, um, which is just insane. I look at it like, like, what is like to, to your point, what, what does inflation even mean? Like they can, you know, measure it however they want, but it, it, I guess maybe perceived inflation is different than actual inflation, but to the, to the everyday person, the perceived inflation is all that matters. Like that's the only thing they care about. I, I had a couple of projects I wanted to do. I went into the lumber yard. This is about three months ago to buy stuff. And, you know, at that time, two by fours were already up like double from what they usually are. And I just said, screw that. I don't have the money to pay double to build this damn barn. You know, so is that inflation? I don't know, but it's certainly perceived inflation and that's bad enough. And the supply chain, and this is what was really part of what was, this was the underlying thing of what I was worried about last year is just from like time in the military. And then of course, working in the ag sector is I I know how logistics work and it's a great big machine and it moves like a slinky. You compress that sucker down, it's not just going to like bounce right back out. You got to uncoil and start over. So you can't just like stop, start that thing. You know, it's like almost like traffic at a traffic light. Like my old man used to always say, if everyone would just go when it turned green, there would be no traffic. I mean, he's kind of right about that, but it's not how it works. So the first car goes, the second car goes and so on. Same thing, you know, happens in the supply chain. So you just can't, at least this is is how I look at it. Um, you just can't expect to shut that thing off in all of the ways that we did and not feel those effects down the road. Like it's not going to be an overnight thing, you know, you, you are exactly correct. And over the last 20 years, uh, I think, you know, 30 years ago, I think the, the mindset started changing, but over the last 20 years, we've seen, um, such a rejiggering of the supply chain. And, and I'm talking about the big picture. Um, of what do we do here as a country? Um, obviously, everyone wants to see more manufacturing and more um, America-made, and a lot of that I think has been dialed down to um, either some sort of an like an ideology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh well, you know, I'm I'm a nationalist and and I want to support America and I want to and I want to um, do this, or I don't care and I'm a uh, sort of a larger worldview picture. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a citizen of the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the people that foster the, the, the argument for sort of a global supply chain are the first people who are going to complain when, the, when they find out that we've relinquished control of the supply chain to people who just 100% do not care whether or not you get to go to Target and get your X, whatever it is. Um, you know, I, 
it's it's morphed into um, it's morphed into almost I'd say a, an an issue that people are going to wake up and realize when and how we get squeezed. Obviously, we are just coming off of the Colonial Pipeline hack, and we just watched the Eastern United States get squeezed on gasoline supply. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's there's not much that 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 can be said about that other than if that's not a wake up call, I don't know what it is uh, or what what could be a bigger wake up call. You have the semiconductor issue, which that extends all the way to the military mm-hmm. um, that extends to PCs and computing um, food. You know, I began and, and this is I'm going to digress a little bit. Right. So from 2000. Um, so, sort of 1990, 96 to 2000, I was just a green rookie. I mean, literally a college dropout. I have the worst punctuation. I'm, I should be punching cows in a bunkhouse right now, and I'm not. <laughs> and uh, there are days that that there's days that I wish I had done that. There are days I wish I hadn't. So I'm sort of call my first four or five years in the business kind of blind luck, kind of stumbling around behind people trying to figure things out. And I'd say at 2000, 2001, I really figured out sort of what my niche was and it's transactional. I'm very good at, um, at seeing, um, sort of the way the big picture works and, um, putting together really large export deals, import deals, hedging, um, options and, and understanding sort of what you talked about, which was the slinky effect. I call it the accordion. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand the accordion and I, and, and I'm, and I'm fairly good and adept at seeing how the accordion is going to affect things coming down the road. But, because of that, in 2007, I was invited to a private equity um, sort of boondoggle, and it was a bunch of uh, a bunch of investment firms, um, all of them looking at private equity across the ag sector. Um, the premise was dairy, of all things that I was invited mm-hmm. to. The guy that invited me was an orange juice guy, and I'm the energy guy, and um, I was asked to speak. And so, you know, my speech there was ultimately only about 20 minutes, but this thing lasted for two days. Mm. Um, during the two days, one of the speakers was a man named Dr. David E. Bell. I will never forget his name. Um, I still moderately have communication with him, but he spoke. He was a Harvard agriculture business school professor, and his specialty was food, but it wasn't specialty necessarily for food and supply chain in the United States. It was global. And his biggest non-Harvard client was the government of China. Um, I gave some piddly speech about how he's algorithms to forecast pricing for electricity so that people can look at five-year electricity on demand curves. And uh, to be honest, I, I don't remember what I said. It was probably nonsense. Um, <laughs> but this guy spoke for about two hours and it dragged into three. Then it turned into a question session. And I listened to him. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I had missed the big picture on supply chain, commodities, and what we talked about earlier, so sort of how you see your life five or 10 or, you know, who, I mean, 10 years down the road, are you kidding me? I can't right. even imagine that far. Right. He explained to me, um, you know, that, that the Chinese government, which by the way, um, as part of this, what you learn is that it's that the big swing vote in all commodities pricing is going to be China, whether or not they're buying or selling ultimately influences because known demand around the world is really influenced on their growth, whether they're increasing or decreasing growth because they are such a massive net consumer of everything. But David E. Bell explains with graph overlays in the ag space in particular, that they are so short food to feed their population because they're, 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 
They basically took their population from being a subsistence farmers, hand to mouth food, where a portion of that would be obviously taken and redistributed to an urban society. They're shifting their population urban away from farming. And quite frankly, their land is not, um, uh, it's not arid enough to be able to produce enough food, corn, wheat, beans, proteins um, to supply their population. And they have a they have a twenty five year they have a five year twenty five year fifty year and hundred year plan for doing this, hm. and they're executing it today, and it Matt, is I, fascinating. Can I jump in here quick? When I was absolutely, kid, um, it's so this is I, I kind of get into this stuff. I don't know. I like data. Kind of data cache gives me something to think about when I'm on a cult, but. Um, I got into looking at what they're doing in, or have been doing to Australia for a few years. And I got thinking when I was a kid, it seemed like we shipped beef to China. And then somewhere between 30 years ago and now, it turned into now we ship alfalfa. And I was told that they just, because they're, they're, they can't grow alfalfa over there for a number of reasons. So what they did was instead of um, buying beef from us, they said, well, it'd be a heck of a lot cheaper if we just start raising beef over here, but we can't really feed them. So we just import corn, alfalfa, you know, um, beans, all of this kind of stuff. And you take a ton of alfalfa bale, ship it to California, and then they compress it and put it on a cargo ship and ship that thing over. So they went from importing beef, which was relatively expensive to now importing alfalfa, which is relatively, which, which is cheap relative to beef. Um, when, when you look at that, I, I, the reason that I think that that is a, uh, a massive liability for us is because we've already centralization, in my opinion, is always a bad thing. Decentralization is almost always better. And now our, this, the ag industry is highly centralized. Um, you know, you like most production is an agribusiness. I know like if you get on the FDA, it will say, or USDA, it will say uh, 92% of farms in America are family owned. And it's like, yeah, well, families own corporations, dude. I get what you're trying to say. I was going to say the Cargill family. (laughs) Right. It's just so ridiculous. Um, But yeah, the small guy is virtually gone. Like, like take when I was a kid, a person could, they would never be rich, but they could make a living off a hundred head of cattle. You could no way in hell feed your family off a hundred head of cattle. Now there's no way on a cattle operation, not even close, not even close. So clearly there's some serious issues going on there. And I perceive China the same way they perceive me, at least it seems as an enemy. So we were in a trade like Trump exacerbated this trade war, spun it up. And then this coronavirus thing hit. And, you know, like Rahm Emanuel famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, if you're China, it seems like a really good time to put the screws to America. So we're fuel prices are going through the roof right now. Alfalfa production's already started, of course, but you know, no one's cut yet, but production started. Um, here in about, I don't know, September or so, if I was China, I would just halt import. I would say, nope, we're good. I don't even care if I'm China. I don't even care if I have to slaughter every freaking beef that I have in China. I don't even care just to put the screws to America. Cause you could, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying they will do this, but that's a move that I could see them making. And that would really, really damage the ag sector big time. I mean, it would cripple us for five, 10 years, you know, it, it is. So, you know, from my 
per, the professional side of me, right? That would never happen. This is this business decision. Well, I can tell you that after after listening to a United States citizen, obviously professor at a school that I would imagine this would come from, explaining to me how he helped them write their plan mm-hmm. on how to feed their country and what that looks like. And he sat in a room with other Americans. Mm-hmm. I, Braxton, it changed my life. Um, I've never forgotten what I heard. I've, it's changed the way I do business. It's changed the way I, 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 I saw my career path taking. Um, I became much more, it changed me into a nationalist and knowing that every, and I've dealt with the Chinese um, for 20 years, um, mm-hmm. that, they are, that they, you said, they are my enemy. In the commodity space, they are our enemy. They, they friend. Mm-hmm. Um, every trading house, right? So anybody that is aggregating at a grain elevator, um, putting corn, beans, wheat, ag products, energy products onto a barge or a ship and running them down a river and exporting them to China is a private industry in the United States. Um, there's no state-run mechanism for agriculture or energy, right? right but right. every deal we do with China is done via state-run businesses, um, Unipec, PetroChina. Um, they're they're two big ag companies, right? So when we sign a contract to export our goods and services, we are literally selling it to a um, to a country, not not like we do when we go to Europe or right. you know uh, South America. Well, South America's got some other nuances as well, but everything they do is controlled by the government. Every purchase, every sale, when they come in and you know, they pre-buy 20 cargoes of corn, right? 25 cargoes of corn. What you said is very astute. They will buy these things where the corn market will go into steep backwardation, which is where the price today is the commodity is is short, right? So we need, so there's pressure in the front, right? Which pushes the price today up versus the price in say December significantly lower, right? Well, they'll dump it. They don't care. They will do what they call cancel cargoes, and that corn will immediately come back into the market here, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it just – it never leaves. It comes back, and then we become awash with corn, and we go from $7 a bushel or six fifty a bushel back to two eighty five a bushel. It absolutely wrecks our economy. We've given ourselves – we've given away our supply chain, and it's – in the ag space, it's, it's a little easier to see it. Um, it's a lot harder to see it when you start looking into the electronics or the plastics, you know, for months. Um, in the beginning of this year, the EIA, which uh, reports sort of global balance sheet um, statistics for um, you know uh, gasoline products, oil products, um, refined products all around the world, there were these sort of empty holes um, about where these products were going. Um, you know, we don't trust the Chinese enough on their numbers that we will run satellites that will look at their tank space to see how much fuel that they have in shore tanks. Um, how many ships do they have offshore that they're hoarding? And for the life of us, we could not figure out what was going on because there was this consumption of gasoline and diesel and um, jet fuel and um, propane, butane, um, ethane, ethylene, polypropylene. There's all these light end and, and refined product in products that were vanishing off the balance sheet and prices were ripping. But the demand that we were seeing was not increasing at the same rate the products were disappearing. And, you know, finally, some guy's like, look, he's like, I think China has more storage than we know. Like, we just don't know. You cannot mm-hmm. be an American energy trading company and have a fully functioning office in China. 
there are offices over there. If you're in that office, you are a partner with a Chinese company. There's no transparency. Um, we truly believe, I believe, um, that they picked up and bought as much as they possibly could to start turning the screws to the rest of the globe. They're, they've done it in acts. They'll do it again. Um, you know, people think, oh, that's far-fetched. That would never happen. That's just not true. They're thinking 50 years ahead. Right. They are working in Africa to develop seeds that will grow um, uh, staple foods in the desert. And American universities that. have been helping them for years. Right. I saw that. They are doing debt colonization all over Latin America. Uh, all over Africa, and they're doing these. You know, you've seen them. Um, I, I think a lot of our, a lot of people listening have seen them. But they'll go in and they'll do these sovereign debt deals with smaller, poorer countries that have natural resources, yep. rare earth minerals. I mean, you want to talk about a, a, a cluster? The rare earth mineral. Our dependence on rare <laughs> earth minerals and this battery push that's going. Are you joking me? Right. Yeah, I mean the yeah between Belt and Road and all of that. I mean, the next war that we fight might be over lithium in Africa, and I think a lot of people don't. I, I mean, I don't know if it's they don't pay attention enough or don't understand it, but I I actually think it's entirely possible that we end up in a proxy conflict with China in Africa over lithium within ten years. Yeah, lithium or cobalt, it'll be one of the two. Yeah, and I agree. And uh, so so okay, so let's circle back. Um, you were right. Um, we are experiencing shortages in different commodities. Um, the real question is what, what does the average person do? Um, and I think that's one that we all need to talk about, you know, what can a person who does not understand commodities or doesn't understand supply chain, you know, what do they do? So they don't wake up and, and go, Oh, I can't buy this anymore. Right. Well, I, yeah, I, I'm, uh, hesitant to give anybody advice but i'll say what i'm doing we have a baby on the way and we're already buying every time i go to you know the store for groceries we're buying extra diapers for the kid that's not even here um storing as much flour as we can and then i tripled the size of just my home garden or i'm going to triple the size of my home garden this year just to try to help um you know, help get through. And then of course I got some cattle so I can slaughter cattle, but it doesn't, if I was someone else, I, you know, like I say, I'm hesitant to give advice to so take this uh, with a grain of salt, but I would, if you can even get one, I would get a deep freezer and I would not even look at the price tag and I would fill that sucker up with beef and pork right now. That's what I'd do. Yeah. So um, you're also, I think in a, very different situation than um, I'd say probably 95% of, uh, of people, right? Maybe even more than that. You've got urbanites, um, you know, for us, and I also hesitate to give anybody advice. I'm just a, uh, you know, a lucky guy from Wyoming. But um, we, we, so we, we've lived in the city of Houston um, for the last four years, and it was an urbanization experiment with my, uh, with Miss Goya and I. We've always lived rural. And uh, it was exciting. It was fun. You know, we can ride our bikes to the uh, to restaurants, and we'd never been able to do that. And and uh, and so there, it's been a real convenience change for me. And I and I now have a real grasp of what convenience looks like. I'd never had it before. Um, I didn't know I was missing anything. And I understand the gravity to which people are attracted to it. You do less. Your life is built around less and less every day your kids do less um, it becomes really a self-serving almost selfish view of of how you live you don't have to do anything if you have a phone you don't have to go to the store you don't have to order sure. you don't have to cook food 
you don't have you don't have to do your laundry every single thing you need to do is one push button away all you need to do is be able to figure out how to electronically transfer money to pay for it mm -hmm. and um that person is going to struggle with what you just mentioned and so uh we've changed our life um i was off the bird app for uh, months months and yeah, months i didn't like I'd it. wondered where, um, where you went <laughs> well i uh miss goy and i every year we 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 sit back and uh reevaluate our lives and uh, we made a conscious decision in January to change it. And we're leaving. We're, uh, we, we close on our house in the city, I think, in three weeks. Um, and I'm going to destinations afar, uh, back out into the country. Good. And, uh, and I'm going to re retool my life in a manner in which you spoke. And, and the only advice, you know, because I, I think that a lot of people um, aren't going to necessarily change their life situation like I was able to do. Um, I think it's, I think that if, if you can, I do think that, that, um, at least getting yourself out of an urban center like I'm in is, is smart, um, if, if possible. Um, I also think that if you don't have the resources and capability to run cattle, um, even even a small amount of cattle or chickens or any type of a protein, um, that, that there are local farmers and local uh, businesses that that you should become acquainted with. I know that around around Houston, there's four or five family-run cattle operations where I can go get a side of beef tomorrow. Um, and I think that that it takes place outside of most urban environments. I think that being able to uh, urban farm and vertical farm, we do, um, even in the city on a tiny lot, um, we've figured out a way. Miss Goya runs tomatoes and peppers and lettuces and um, all sorts of food. I mean, we get more food out of a tiny area than, than probably most people would get out of a quarter acre garden. And, uh, and so I think there are things people can do. Um, I do think that um, deep freezers, if you know, space warrants are 100% something that should always be in a rotation for people. Um, and, and, and I do think that networking and, you know, a, a friend yeah. of ours, you know, and I'm going to bring it up because Clay Martin wrote that book, The Concrete Jungle Book. And um, I've actually given that book to a lot of people. And, and I'm not necessarily thinking that there's going to be some catastrophic, cataclysmic, you know, urban sort of rush. But when you look at what took place with Colonial Pipeline being closed down for one week and the gas shortages and people filling target bags, we are very sensitive to minor disruptions in the accordion or the slinky of the supply chain, and we don't control them anymore. And I do think that having a base knowledge of how to be able to function in those types of situations controls the panic, right? You don't see people filling up target bags with 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 gasoline. I saw a video of that. I about I did. I, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was really something. But no, uh, yeah, you're right. I, uh, community is huge. It's um, when I was a kid, uh, I lived around a lot of Mormon guys, and you know they're really big on that. And when you you know, they kind of got made fun of, but I, in fact, I think I remember, uh, John Stewart back when I was in school, I think I remember him when I was in college talking crap about Mormons and how silly they were. Like they were a, a, a cult of preppers and all of that. And I mean, imagine how smug you'd feel if you were a prepper Mormon right now with all your damn, you know, canned potatoes and all that in your basement, you know? It's remarkable. The, the the Mormons have been catching a bad rap, you know, since I was a kid. I, you know, it's a, a very, you know, it's a it's a widely practiced religion in Wyoming, and you know, half my friends were Mormons, and they all they all canned food, and uh, mm -hmm. they all saved meat, and and uh, you know, but the sense of community as well uh, is is definitely something you can emulate, and um, 
few people do it, Braxton. I, I live in an urban environment and I'm telling you, I just don't, there are people here that during the freeze that we had when there was no electricity, I mean, you're talking about, you know, three, four or five days and it was desperation. There was no food. There was, you know, there was, uh, there was no water with these houses that were, that were shut off and people were laughing because, you know, they're saying, oh, well, it's Texas. They can't handle a cold snap and a freeze, but uh, Jay, that, you can just say me. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I felt the same way. I'm, I grew up obviously in central Wyoming and, and I understand, I understand winter, but I will tell you that the, um, the reaction here was telling it was uh it was scary that that there's so many people that live in this you know i think the metroplex is five million people um it was completely 100 percent shut down braxton everything was shut down there was if you did not have food and water you didn't eat for 48 hours um and i think there was a significant amount of people who live sort of in that that range right they live sort of in a in a 48 to sort of 72 hour um, convenience bubble of what they can survive on. In my opinion, that's too short. Yeah. Yep. You're right. And you know, you said canning in there. We, uh, my wife and I can't, I used to, well, before I met her, I used to do some canning on my own, but she does all of it now. And, uh, it's really not hard to can and it's something that, or, you know, jar or whatever, however you want to say that it's really not a hard thing to do. And it's probably wise, uh, like she'll can a bunch of chicken, for example, she does it every year. And I take it, if I'm going in the back country for a while, I just pull it out of the can and stick it in a bag and stick it in my saddlebags, you know, and then I have like four pounds of chicken just on my horse when I go somewhere, you know, and you could do that just as easy, uh, in any kind of sort of crunch scenario, you know, even if you can't heat it up, it's cooked, you know, it's pre-cooked and safe. You, you might have to eat it cold, but at least you're eating. So that's, that's a thing that I think anybody could do. You just, you can right on your, uh, you know, your stovetop. Of course. You don't need anything fancy. A lot of people think they need fancy stuff. You really don't. And before I met her, I canned in just a damn, uh, I had me one of them. I forget what you call it, but it's almost like a, uh, iron scissor deal that'll grab the top of the jar. And I just drop them in boiling water and just can right there. No pressure cooker or nothing, you know? No, no. And, um, and, you know, the, the irony of, of all of this is that we willfully gave this away. Um, yeah. It's big corporations. It's the bottlenecks that have been created. They're of our own doing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, before, before I sign off here, I, I want to thank you because you you did a great service. Um, you know, people always say, well, how does this change? Well, it changes if we can find 200 more Joe Kent's, um, mm. you know, that's it. Other than that, I, I don't know how it changes. Um, you know, if we don't change the trajectory of the way people view um, our life and liberty, then all of the bottlenecks, all of the shortages, all of the um, inconveniences that we don't want are going to increase. Um, that's because nobody else wants them, you know, they, they don't want us to, to succeed. No one does. Uh, we're going to have to do it on our own. So, Braxton, I I, I want to thank you again for having Joe Kent on. I want to have, you know, thank you for keeping to push, the, push these issues uh, out to the forefront front and i'm glad we could talk about them thank you for coming on sir i think that's a great place to leave it i appreciate you i do too i do too and by the way if you ever uh if, if goya three is ever sleeping in your barn one morning <laughs> um just promise me you'll, you'll keep him fed while he uh while he tries to follow you around <laughs> shoot me a text first so i know he's out there <laughs> I, yeah. I will buddy i appreciate okay. it take care sir thank you you, you too bye-bye
All right, that's it. Thank you all. I appreciate you listening. And a reminder again, if you want to get a copy of my book, The Glass Factory, in hardcover, autograph, now is a good time to do it. You go to my website, uh, braxmccoy.com slash theglassfactory, and you can pick that thing up for pretty cheap, and we'll ship it to you for free. Uh, thank you all again for the, respo- the support. If you haven't left a review, please do so at this time. It really helps us. And uh, that's it. I want to say thanks again to my friend Javier Goya and to y'all for listening. Take care. Have a good week.